Welcome, ye trout fund troubadours, ye hatch-matching, code-cracking crusaders, and you deep-throwing space abhors to another riveting episode of Hollowed Waters Podcast. Uh, we go to places and ends of the universe with our guests, and boy, do we have a really exciting one for you today. Um, I'm, I am Matthew Tomek Manishma Supinski, and uh, I am fresh back from the Catskills and uh, had a great time there. But uh, on our podcast, as you know, we are exploring brilliant angling talents and minds and cognito ergo sum, as Rene Descartes said, we think and therefore we fish. And how we solve the many riddles and tactical codes only trout, salmon, and steelhead can impose on us to master in the great skews, Sawyer, and Halfordian foundations. Um, so that's our introduction, and it's so exciting to have this guest. But first of all, I want to talk a little bit about um, Hollowed Waters Journal, and we are going to print, venue, and design, and we're working with another group to take it to the next level, so we appreciate everyone out there for being patient and uh we are working on our new issue coming soon for the fall winter issue uh also uh our condolences to the queen what a great lady she was and um uh congrats to king charles who's a wonderful man um that um he's a big fly fisherman he um He's in, he's um, uh, also uh, the, the the chairman of the alliance, the Atlantic Salmon Alliance Trust that England has been spearing up, and he's been a big crusader for Atlantic salmon. And um, I actually got to fish the Mountbatten Estate, and I think now um, it's an Orvis bed and breakfast, or was an Orvis bed and breakfast. And uh, uh, I saw him fishing one day when I was there back in the '80s. So to have a great leader and a fly fishing guy like King Charles. Uh, is an absolute wonderful thing for our sport um, that we love so much. And uh, our blessings and thoughts and prayers are out to to the people of Ukraine and Eastern Europe for what's going on there. Um, you know, you don't hear much about it on the news, but um, it's a terrible thing. Thousands of lives were lost because of a crazy, maniacal madman. And we hope to a uh, peaceful resolution as quick as possible. So our hearts and blessings are with you. But the excitement is today's subject is the wonderful world of trout, the complete and pragmatic approach to this fascinating world. And we're going to get into small streams, trout fishing and hatch matching strategies. But uh, first of all, this, this, my guest um, it's so honored to have him as an iconic man that's name and brand he represents is synonymous with fly fishing worldwide. His talents and approach have been exemplary and has been an iconic fly fishing sensei master for decades. Um, besides his, you know, groundbreaking Orvis helmship of creativity, design, and making fly fishing a mainstream part of the modern outdoor experience for, for all that, you know, fine connoisseurs of country sporting gentlemen and ladies that Orvis has been a hallmark of excellence and quality for over centuries. He also is a very kind man and has introduced a lot of novices and a lot of people that are getting into fly fishing and have always thought of it as just being, you know, uh, or just a snooty sport for a bunch of old white dudes and ladies. And, and he is, he's breaking those barriers and boundaries and, uh, and he continues to do so. And he's done it for decades. Um, 
you know, I've had a bromance crush on this guy for a long time. Not that he and Orvis are so stinking rich and wealthy. And I wonder what the hell happened to me. But being that we are both from the Buffalo Rochester Bills country, go Bills, by the way, what a victory. Um, but I always enjoyed his straightforward, practical approach, whereas my dreamy, I don't know, theoretical, anthropomorphizing and mind-twisting romantic approach to fly fishing was completely opposite at times. But we were both in the same direction. Um, you know, his wonderful he's so wonderful for the novices and getting people into fly fishing and taking experts to the next level. Um, so, you know, all that stuff, uh, this guy is sort of a, a Renaissance man, and we're going to get into all those details in his books and all the things that he's done. But without further ado, it is my pleasure and I am honored to present the living Bergman and Brooks reincarnate that typifies a treatise of a trout bum. He is the pragmatic prophet that makes the conundrum of fly fishing easy to comprehend for novices nexus to becoming a master. He has done to fly fishing to introduce and make it exciting and fun, as did fellow Vermontonians Ben and Jerry's did to ice cream and Bernie Sanders did to get millennials to be passionate about something. All in the honor of the fedora flea ficking trout bum, the one and only, and this guy is all hat and all cowboy, which is rare, the most prolific fly fishing author that ever graced this wonderful world of trout. Tom Rosenbauer. Welcome, Tomek Rosenbauer. Uh, Matt, I, I don't think I can live up to that introduction. I think I think you you've already you've already set people up to be disappointed. <laughs> well, you know, that's that's the way I intimidate us into making sure they go to the next level. Whatever you know? happened to underpromise and overdeliver? <laughs> well, you know, Tom, you're all a hat and cowboy, man. So um and that's rare. You know, most people just all hat, but uh, you're the hat and the cowboy. So it's it's great having you. Um, you know, what's what struck me uh, about you um, and, you know, a lot of, you know, hopefully a lot of listeners and subscribers are going to really get to see a different side of you on this podcast because they see all the stuff in the books and, and who you represent and what you do. But, um, you know, I, after having a spending a couple of wonderful days with you in the Catskills and uh, it was such a pleasure and such a great time. And I got to see a different guy. And, and you know, I saw your graciousness and enthusiasm. And, and the enthusiasm part is, is something that's rare today. Um, you know, five people that get into the industry, become guides, become professionals, their enthusiasm for the sport wanes over time. And, and they get burned out, as they'd say, and especially guides, too, because they're doing it seven days a week. And it gets to be a drudgery. With ice, What I saw in you when we were fishing uh, up in the Catskills and, and exploring remote areas and stuff was your enthusiasm level is relentless and you just keep going. And, and that's, that's the sign of a true passionate master. And, and what really did it for me when is that day, the rainy day, when you caught that huge brown trout in that very remote location of the Catskills <laughs> that no one, no one fishes. And uh, there was a, there was a there African-American gentleman walking over the bridge in a pouring rainstorm. And he was screaming, Hey man, you catch that trout down there. Boy, that's amazing, man. And, and, and you, we got a monster brown trout that's practically breaking our net. Can't even fill into it. And, and you're screaming up at him and saying, Hey man, come on down. Anybody could do this. You know, you could do it too. You know, you just need to get a rod and get fishing. And that was so impressive that most people, you know, where we go in the Catskills are very snobby and snooty and, you know, they're like, you know, get away and they're grumpy and everything. And to have that level of enthusiasm, 
truly showed me your passion. And, um, you know, I, I don't know what to say, Tom, where do you get that drive? Where do you get that passion? Where, where does that enthusiasm come after writing 30 bucks, uh, doing decades of work? Tell me about it. What, what is it? Well, I'm not sure, Matt. Um, maybe it's because I've never been a guide. I'd be a terrible guide. Uh, so no, you'd be a wonderful guy. No, I wouldn't. I'd be a terrible guy. I'd be a terrible guy. Um, and I don't know. Well, you know, fly fishing is endlessly fascinating and doesn't matter if it's, you know, bluegills on a dock or, or little brook trout in a stream or, or tarpon. It's just, there's, there's, there's always so much to learn. And it's all so new that how could you, how, how could you lose your enthusiasm? Um, you know, if you if you set your mind out to, I just want to catch a big fish, or I just want to catch a certain species, or I want to catch a lot of fish, um, you can you maybe set yourself up to be burned out. But if you just take what Mother Nature gives you and and experience whatever kind of fishing um, there is in front of you, then how you. you you're not, you're not ever going to lose your passion for it. Cause you're not, you're not expecting anything special. And I'm not one of those people that says, Oh, I just, I just like, I just like being out listening to the birds or looking at rocks. That's crap. I like to catch fish. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and you're pretty, you're a pretty fishy dude. And, um, you know, but, but there is that, you know, I think that Renaissance man in you and, and, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about that, you know, mushroom picking and chocolates. It's, it, I think the people that I have fished with and the ones that are truly the passionate ones can transcend everything about the fish experience and, and bring everything else into that fish experience. And one day we were fishing on that remote Catskill stream um, and we were just sitting on the bank and watching, you know, the ospreys and the beautiful mergansers eat all our trout and, <sighs> and, and all that stuff. We were, we Kill were, them all. we were, Kill we them were all. looking, yeah, we, the <laughs> I got it all. I paid a local. He's, he's cleaning it out as we speak. So, uh, <laughs> we'll be fine. Uh, you know, it's a few, uh, few bottle, a few pounds of Polish sausage and stuff is going to get me through to that one. But, uh, but yeah, uh, we were just watching nature and stuff. And, and I think that's the beauty of what you do. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's that well-roundedness that I see in you that I didn't know that side exists, but in those minds that I have, that I've, I've, I've had so many great minds on this, on these podcasts. And, uh, uh, we thank you all the subscribers, our subscribers are going through the roof right now and listeners and we're on all, all continents and we're getting emails from people from all over. And I think they're going to realize, and, and they know you probably more than most names today, because you know, all the stuff you've done in the books and, and all your Orvis guides and books you've written, you know, if you take you through all that, there's, there's the complexity to do, to be a writer and to do all these things and to touch on every micro subject that you've touched upon. It, it, it is a different mindset. It's a different genetic code that you have and other people have uh, that separates mediocrity from excellence. And I think that's, you know, where, where, where we, we transcend those boundaries, but you know, your book portfolio is insane. And you know, when I have a guest on um, that you talk about a subject they did or something they did, 
But with for me yesterday, trying to prepare for this podcast was it was a nightmare because how do you try to prepare? And we could actually do two, three, four podcasts because there's just no way you could cover all the stuff that you've done. And, uh, and, and this is in reality, folks. I mean, if you look at the book portfolio, it's insane. If you go back and you look at Orvis Fly Fishing Guide, 1984, where the hell were I? Was I 1984? I was still, I was thinking I was a chef and uh, apprentice. Reading Trout Streams, 1988. Prospecting for Trout, um, that was 1993. Then you get into all the Orvis guides to just about everything in fly fishing, fly tying, American trout flies, the complete book of fly ship fishing. I think I had a chapter from Steelhead Dreams in there. Uh, you know, it just goes on and on and on and on. And and these books, you know, basically encompass the entire spectrum of the sport. And, and you know, to books about guides and leaders and insect hatches and, and guides to getting family and friends into fishing. And uh, I mean, Dude, it's it's relentless. So how do you how do you cover all this stuff? It's it's a guide to everything, and 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 plus your weekly you know fly tying social media stuff you've done, the YouTube stuff you've done. You're you're surrounded by a cast of producers of photographers. You're like a Spielberg, dude. I mean, it's just like it's crazy, and 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 you're a whirlwind of a brand efficiency. I mean, you, you, what you do makes the Germans look sloppy. Okay, I mean, <laughs> you know, it's it's crazy. And I look at all this stuff and how do you, well, I'm half, I'm half German, you know? Yeah, so. I know. And you're half Polish too. You yeah. Said. So, yeah. So let's see. We Tomac, what's my name? Tom, Tomac? Tomac. 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 Bardzo dobrze. Tomac. Manishma. Tomac. And I am, I am Jakub. Um, but you know, you, you put all that stuff together and the drive and, and, and so let's start there the talent and motivation drive to write. And how the hell do you write? And how how can you know? Do you do do you do it on legal pads? Do you do it on the computer? Do you sit in a nice glen somewhere and look at the birds and bees, or watch trout rise in your backyard? How do you how do you get started on a project like that? Just for writers, you know. Well, it's uh, it, for the first time in in a, in a many 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 years. I don't have a book in progress right now, which has been really nice. I usually have something going on. Uh, I've got a, I've got a proposal in, but I don't have, I don't have a book in progress, but you know, it, it really is. Uh, I try to do most of it during the winter, first of all, because then I devote summer to taking pictures. Um, and plus I want to be outside uh, with my family and fishing and everything else during the summer. So I try to do a lot of it during the winter and it typically is uh, Sunday, uh, Sunday afternoon. I will put myself at my computer and write till about six o'clock. Um, yeah. And, you know, do you, do you read, do you just free flow, write, Or do you have a, do you have diagram outlines and how do, how do you sort of set your, set your whole. Yeah. I, I outline, I outline uh, the book by chapters and then, and then I usually have like a bulleted list you know, I have a, a chapter and then I have a bulleted list of everything I want to cover in the chapter. And I will actually write to the outline. So I'll start, I'll start typing in right in the outline. And as I cover those bullets, I'll delete them. So once I've written, you know, I've written as, as much as I want to write about each bullet, I'll delete it. And then I might move the, move the bullets around and I might add, add bullets and, uh, but uh, you know, it's it's not a it's not a super structured outline, but it is. Uh, I do write to an outline. Yeah, 
Yeah, similar. Same, I do the same thing with my my writings and stuff, mm-hmm. and, and most most that I do. And uh, I used to do legal pads <laughs> sitting on a beach uh, in Narragansett. I think my first article in Fly Fisherman, I did that, yeah. and uh, it, it's eventually you get to the screen and stuff. But you know, your your new book, your trout book, um, sort of like a you know a, a tour of the country. Talk a little bit about your the new book, the trout book, and and the fishing all the great places. How did you get inspired to do that? Oh, well, you know, I did a, it, it's kind of a coffee table book and it's, it's really uh, Brian Rosenbacher's book because it's, it's a photography book. And I did, I did a book called Salt with uh, publisher Rizzoli, which is a great publisher. They do art books and they do really beautiful, beautiful books. Yeah, and I, I, did a, yep. I did a book with Andy Anderson, the great, the great photographer called Salt. And it was about saltwater fishing, which uh, you and I disagree about. I love passionately, and you, and you don't uh, have any interest in. I'm Baltic blood, man. I can't hear. Yeah, you're missing a lot, man. So, anyways, I did this book, Salt, with Andy Anderson, and it for a for a book like that it sold pretty well. So I went to my editor Rizzoli, and I said, Jim, you know, if if you're happy with Salt, Salt Water Fly Fishing book we got to do one on trout because it's going to sell like five, six, seven times as well as the salt book. Um, so we, we, we both said, well, we got to do it with Brian Grossenbacher. Brian is, Brian is, you know, he's been around forever, not forever, yeah, spectacular guy. been around for a long time. He was a guy, he gets it. Um, he's does a lot of work for Orvis. So I, you know, I had known Brian and Brian and I, um, uh, Worked together on it. I wrote the, I wrote, I don't know, a dozen essays, 10 or 12 essays. And then we picked uh, Brian's images that went along with it. We actually, we actually uh, went fishing in the Catskills. Well, I went fishing and Brian followed me around the camera. Brian loves to fish and he's so disciplined. He, he never picked up a rod, even at, even during an amazing Hendrickson hatch where even the geese were eating Hendrickson's. Um, Brian, Brian just, never took his eye away from the viewfinder and that's a sign of a real pro because i know he loves to fish wow that's so anyway cool. um yeah so that's that's the book it's a, it's a coffee table book you know i yeah, don't yeah. i don't write many essays um I, I i'm not a i i don't consider myself a lyrical writer and so it was it was really enjoyable to kind of be freed from the nuts and bolts of the how to stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, it was work. I mean, writing is, you know, writing is real work, but it was, uh, it's a lot, lot more pleasant than, uh, than writing a how to book. Plus I didn't have to worry about images, you know, what, you know, I, I spend as much time on my own books on, on images as I do on my writing. Cause I fly fishing is such a, a visual sport and, Years and years ago, I taught myself photography and hung around some good photographers because I knew that fly fishing doesn't pay much, whether it's magazine articles or books. Um, You can't afford to pay a photographer. You have to do it yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I do a lot of my photography, too. Yeah. uh, Yeah, You have to because it's it's not a not a lucrative. uh, You can't can't hire, uh, you know, an editor to come and do, you know 
pay them thousands of dollars and you're like, well, geez, I'm only going to make 10 cents on that. So, yeah, right. so how, does, yeah. how does it come down to it? Um, you know, my first association um, with you was uh, through my connection, Dick Pope's here in Michigan when we started out at the Great Drake. Yeah. You were Orvis. And uh, thanks to Dick, who's a wonderful man that I fished with a lot. And, uh, you know, he did the, uh, you know, the quintessential Orvis pocket guide to trout stream insects, which... Yeah. Um, we're going to have a question today from somebody that, that still lives and dies by that book. And it's still the book mm-hmm. that if you want to learn bugs, it's the method to learn. And it's so simple. And you keep yeah. that book in your pocket. Yeah. And uh, through Dick, you know, he eventually, um, you know, got me going in all this. And then I did my Paramarquette River Journal. And then I did my really big book, Steel Eyed Dreams, which went crazy. And I think today it's still the the number one selling book on steel had ever written. And mm. I saw a copy on, saw a copy on eBay with a signature copy go for $1,600 the other day. And, really? And it's not in print anymore. And uh, so I, I have, I have one copy. So, you know, I should have bought a freaking case of that book, but I have a um, copy. So I have a copy. Yeah. And well, what are you, what are you willing to pay for it? Screw you, man. Uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, so is that. And then um, I'm jealous. My books on eBay go for like three, four dollars. Well, there's even so signed. I mean, you know, you could. I mean, it, there's just so many of them. How could you keep track? You know. And uh, and uh, so then um, I think I got a I got an email or call from you to do a, a pocket guide for Great Lakes uh, salmon and steelhead, and so I yeah. did. Orvis Pocket Guide to Great Lakes Salmon Steelhead, and then you did um, your your complete guide to fly fishing, and I I think there was a chapter out of my uh, Steelhead Dreams book in that in that thing. But that was you know that was the start of of that that whole thing and the years. But your complexity, uh, you know, as an iconic figure in fly fishing goes past fly fishing, a gourmet uh, you know chocolatier, which we got to talk about, mycologist, your wild mushroom picking. You sent me that picture that day of those. Sean Charles, I was like losing it, man. I was. Like, I know I've been taunting oh, you with. Oh, you're we, just. We so, have a. We had a late. Fruiting. Such a nasty foul man. Behind we had a all late these accolades, of it's this really late. Terrible. He he baits you and he sends you. He knows how much I love wild mushrooms, and I can't find a damn wild mushroom here in our in our backwoods jack pine heathen woods, and here in Michigan, and he's living in this Vermont mycology Valhalla up in Vermont and showing me these pictures. It's not I'm, exactly I'm a Valhalla. We just, my family and I, um, I mean, that's what we do every weekend. We, you know, we're like Eastern Europeans. We go out mushrooming. And so, you know, you, you get to know your spots and uh, you know, my wife and my 17 year old are both wild about it. So, you know, we spend a lot of time at it, Matt. Yeah. And, and, and you guys are good at it. So tell me about the chocolate stuff. I mean, I, I list honest to God, I've, I've tasted so many chocolates when I was touring Europe in my apprenticeship, uh, my chef apprenticeship, I Belgian chocolates, Swiss chocolates, Italian chocolates, your meadowy chocolates, dude is sick. I mean, they are so complex. Uh, tell us, tell our listeners about what you're doing in the chocolate world, which is crazy. Well, I'm not a chocolatier. Uh-uh, you, you should are. know that chocolatier is someone who makes bonbons and all those other frou-frou things. I make bars. I make chocolate bars. I start right. from raw beans. I roast them. I grind them, crack them, winnow them, 
temper the chocolate, but, but I just make bars. I don't do bonbons. So I'm a chocolate. Well, maker. I thought you did bonbons too. Oh right? no, I don't do bonbons. No, I don't do. Bonbons. I leave that to Christopher Elbow in Kansas city. He makes the best bonbons. Okay. But um, um, Meadowy, I love the name. That's your stream, right? Yep. Meadowy Muddler. Um, my, my wife and my, and my 17 year old uh, years ago when, when he was young, they, they came up with the name and they made me a, a funky label for it. And the reason I started out was because my uh, 17 year old is uh, very allergic to peanuts, like anaphylactic, you know, a peanut could kill him. Uh, so, uh, you know, a, a kid, kids in chocolate, I mean, they couldn't have any chocolate because there's cross contamination. So I said, well, you know, we, we make, make our own bread and our own yogurt and we're reading labels. Maybe I can make my own chocolate. And I screwed around with it and hacked away at it. Uh, it wasn't very good. And then I discovered this website called Chocolate Alchemy. It's actually a company, a gentleman named John Nancy, who really started the whole uh, artisan bean to bar movement. He figured out how to make chocolate at home in your kitchen and people like Mass Brothers and all the gourmet chocolate makers uh, use what he developed. And he sells beans and he sells the equipment. And I, you know, I've been doing it for, I think, 12 years now. So it's damn uh, good. I mean, it's and, you know, I'm a perf- you know, I'm a perfectionist. You probably figured that out. Um, yep. And so I just didn't give up on it. Uh, made a lot of mistakes. Made a lot of bad chocolate. Um, and now it was good. I, I do make good chocolate. Oh yeah, it's crazy. My my mother in law, I, I left her a bar and she was going to dinner the other night up in the Catskills and she was going to a very fancy dinner and uh she brought a bar of your chocolate as a, a offering because the guy's a chocolate fanatic. And oh. went to their house and the guy tasted it and he was like, Oh my god, this is truly amazing. So you have a third part. I'm sure you've had the accolades and people want you to produce it, but Hey, it, it's re- it's really good. To, good. So let's get, let's, we got a lot of material to cover. Let's, you know, wh- who are your fir- fly fishing mentors? If I had, you know, if I had to pick my mentors, it was a time I spent with Vince a little bit when I was just got to the DC area and I, I got to know him through Datus Proper, who's in my fly fishing club, my trout unlimited chapter, national trout unlimited. And then I met Ed Shank and then I came to Michigan and then there was Dick Popes and I fished with Carl Richards here on the Muskegon a couple of times a week. Who are the guys that made the biggest impact for you when you were starting out and you were growing up and, and who are those iconic figures that you look to? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, as far as uh, writing is concerned, cause I, like you, I grew up, uh, not really having any uh, mentors in fly fishing. I'm really, really self-taught, but there was a gentleman in Rochester by the name of Carl Coleman. And yeah, Carl right. had a little, little Orvis shop in his, his breezeway. And um, I got to know him and uh, started tying flies for him when I was, I don't know, 12 or 13 years old for his shop. He liked my dry, Catskill dry flies. And uh, I learned so much from Carl. He's, he's a, he's a brilliant, brilliant uh, angler, particularly nymph, particularly nymph fishing. He fished, this is before strike indicators and Euro nymphing. He, 
he taught me how to upstream nymph with floating line, just floating line, heavy flies, straight upstream. Um, and and it, it was deadly. Um, and, and that's the way we knew fish. I mean, nobody knew about strike indicators. I mean, they were probably using them somewhere because Ed Hewitt was, was using strike indicators in the thirties in, yeah. in the Catskills. He put little pieces of floss on his leader. So, but we didn't know about strike indicators. We didn't do tight lining or euro nymphing or anything, just straight upstream floating line. And it worked. Um, and Carl taught me a lot about mayflies and caddisflies and spinners and, you know, he took me fishing a few times. He's a busy guy, but he took me fishing. And then I would talk to him on the phone. <laughs> I would drive him crazy, I'm sure. Um, uh, and so, you know, I learned a lot from Carl. And then as far as um, heroes, uh, Joe Brooks, of course, Joe Brooks, Lee Wolf, you know, I never... I don't think I learned as much from Lee Wolf because he was more into the big trophy fish and Atlantic salmon and, uh, and his, his fly theories were kind of wacky. Ted Williams, he was very, you know, the big fish, you know, the, the Hemingway pursuit of the big monster. Yeah. I was never, I, I, I never followed baseball. So I was never, never a Ted Williams fan. And then um, John Atherton um, who wrote a book in 1953 called the fly and the fish. Yeah. Um, that was really influential. And it's ironic because he wrote most of the book uh, on the batten kill. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't live on the batten kill till I was, I didn't fish it till I was 19. I didn't live on it till I was 21 years old. But when I was 12, 13 years old, I was reading the fly and the fish. And I actually got to know Atherton's widow, Maxine, uh, later in life. Uh, before she passed, she was a character. Oh my God, she was a character. She had fished with Franco and uh, in, in Spain, and oh, she had some stories. She fished, of course, she fished with Hewitt. Uh, she spent a lot of time with Hewitt and sparse gray hackle. So she was a character. She wow. was a real. She was a real piece of work. That, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, you know, we grew up in the same area. We fished probably the same streams around yeah. the same time. You know, the yeah. Owatka, the Cataragas, the Wiscoy, the East Coy. Hey, Matt, um, Matt, 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 Matt. Let's not. Tom, I've written about them all in my books. So oh, there's nothing okay. new out there. But I try not to spot burn good. those places. Yeah, no, you don't want to spot burn. I think more, to be honest with you, I think the more love they get and the more people start to to, to pay homage to them and realize yeah. the importance of them. I'm always, I'm always the person that the, a stream cannot get enough love. And once it gets to that much embracement, people realize that a stream is only as good as the healthiness of that stream. And if we start to trash it, and I'm very worried about the Catskills right now about, you know, the pressure that it's getting and what's happening there. And, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, but it has good people. It has the friends of the Delaware. It has yeah. good stuff and, yeah. and the museum. So, yeah. And, and I think those streams in Western New York are just need more embracement and people need to realize that, how important they were in the fly fishing uh, legacy and um, and to you and me and and the stuff that we did uh, for, for with those streams and how they brought us to a different level. And, um, you know, your love for brown trout, I know, is, is, is massive and um, to a hatch matching person. And we're going to get into your hatch matching strategies. But that whole area was so iconic. I mean, to have Seth Green at Caledonia and to have um, 
Fred Mather go to Germany and bring the brown trout eggs to Cold Spring Harbor where he was at. He was from Hanoi Falls and he was raising grayling. And then he was at the Cold Spring Harbor in, in Long Island. And then I moved to Michigan. And then I, in my backyard, one of the first streams was Bigelow Spring Creek, which was on the Pierre Marquette train that day when they, they dropped him into the White River and in a Bigelow Spring Creek. And uh, just to have that connection, the brown trout is just so... Uh, synonymous with with the the trout bum passion and that whole thing and and you know I think that background that we had was in such a rich area of of fly fishing back then it was big and and, and you know people took it as a, a religion and you know you know it was I had my first Orvis Think Trout catch and release sticker it was a green sticker Think Trout I got it when I came up to to the Battenkill and to visit the Orvis headquarters when I graduated from high school. Uh, you know, it was, it was such a big deal. And, and I think today we need to, to pay homage to, to, to who taught us and where we came from and, and our roots. And, you know, who, when, when you had that epiphany to do what you're doing, what was that golden moment? He says, well, I'm going to be a fly fishing guide. And when your mother says, Tom, you know, why are you just going to mess around with this fly fishing? Why do you keep doing it? What was that epiphany? What was that really part in your life that really taught you to say, hey, man, that, that said, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I do. I mean, what I was of, that epiphany? I mean, I kind was of it fell cool? into it. And, and my my parents were very um, non-judgmental and they never tried to steer me in any particular occupation. They just wanted me to. Uh, learned to do what I love. And I wanted to be a fish biologist, went to, got an undergraduate degree at uh, State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry. Someday they got to shorten that name. Um, and uh, then I, then, then what, uh, you know, to be a fish biologist, you really needed a master's degree. I didn't have one. Uh, worried to do anything interesting. So I went to Orvis, uh, answered a help wanted ad for uh, a re- job in the retail store. That and, you know, I, I mean, I did, I never, I was not, I was not a very good planner. I, I, I never really planned my life. I, I knew that I would always fly fish because, you know, I, I was a sicko even through high school and college when, most other kids are, uh, you know, chasing girls or, you know, driving fast cars. I was sneaking out to go fly fishing. Uh, I was a nerd, let's face it. And so I knew I'd always be, in, you know, involved in it somehow. Uh, but I didn't really plan anything. And I just fell into it at Orvis. And, and whether through uh, laziness or lack of momentum, I just never left. and. Things opened up. You know, Orvis was growing and lots of cool things opened up and I kept finding new challenges there. And, I, you know, they threatened to fire me a number of times, but I'd survived. <laughs> you're, you're a survival. You're, you're, you're passionate. You're a, uh, you're a troubadour, man. That's your trout bump troubadour. And on that note, we have so much to talk with. We are with Tom Rosenbauer, the trout bump troubadour king. Uh, the iconic crusader and we are going to take a quick break and we are going to be right back most of you think of orvis as a trout rod and a real company Uh, i've known them for many decades and i had my first orvis rod graphite rod when i was a teenager 
using up my hard-earned paper route money uh, to to buy one. Um, they have been known so much for what they do in the trout world, and their stuff is outstanding, made in Vermont uh, for for since the the days fly fishing really started in this country. And um, but but they've gotten serious with their spay uh, activity, and lately. Um, uh, Combs uh, and the rod designers um, got together and say we're going to be taken seriously in this market and they came up with the Orvis Mission uh, two-handed series. Uh, I was blown away when I got my first Orvis two-hander and I took it to uh, to Iceland and I was just just overwhelmed by how well it competed with the other rods that I had with me, the Sages, the G. Lewis's, the Berkheimer's. Um, they put in some serious technology in these rods. Uh, the beauty of them, the handles, the, the grips, the, 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 whole, the whole package is just simply amazing. And um, they are now a force to be reckoned with in the spay market. And you should definitely look at the Mission Series next time you're going to purchase the rods. They're, 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 they're very affordable and they're beautiful in the hand and they feel just as good as the top line spay rod you could possibly imagine. So visit Orvis, go to your Orvis dealer, to your fly shop that carries Orvis and ask for the Orvis mission. Give it a test run and look at it and you will be simply amazed how serious Orvis has come into this very competitive spay rod two-handed market. Hello, listeners. If you love the content that you're hearing on the Hollowed Water podcast series, Migratory Spay, um, you will love the, the books that were written by the guests that have been on this podcast series, especially from Topher Brown and myself, who did the inaugural four-hour series. We talked a lot about Atlantic salmon, and uh, if you're addicted to Atlantic salmon, um, Topher wrote his book called Atlantic Salmon Magic which was printed by Wild uh, Wild River Press, and my book, Brown Trout Atlantic Salmon Nexus, uh, by Skyhorse Publications, uh, really take you to the next step if you like what you listen to, if you like all the content that we've been talking about in these podcasts. The next step is to go and read and, and get di- to dive deeper into, into what's behind the magic and the journey for these amazing fish. So we encourage you to go to Amazon, go to your local fly shop or to your bookseller um, and request these books, which will make you see a lot more things that you've missed along the way and uh, dive per- further into the passion for Atlantic salmon.
Welcome back. We are with the iconic Tom Rosenbauer, and we're talking all things of the wonderful world of trout, small streams, and we're going to get into hatch-matching strategies. But, you know, Wonderful World of Trout was a beautiful book, uh, Tom, that you probably know by Charlie Fox. I do you know, know it well, yes. And such a wonderful book. and. Yeah. Uh, Charlie was a great guy when I was in D.C. On the when I'd come up and fish Saturdays and Sundays and Mondays when I had off in my hotel career, I'd usually try to run into Vince on a Monday morning and and listen to his whole gripey, grumpy, curmudgeonly itinerary of how he hated all them damn Philadelphia and Washington people coming up every weekend. So he only fishes Monday, and there I come in with my goddamn BMW that has a D.C. license plates on it. And another yuppie coming for me. He hated yuppies, man. And I typified yuppies, man. It was so. And then, you know, we'd go. I'd, I couldn't take it any longer. So I'd go over to Charlie's Meadow. And then there's a nice guy. Charlie Fox comes out. He had to check out who's always back in his meadow. And he's just so different. And how those two, those are Jekyll and Hyde personalities, yin and yang. I mean, one was so kind and the other was so grumpy. But uh, just FYI to all us old white dudes, don't get grumpy when you get older. Try to be kind. And 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 uh, the nice thing I like about what you do now, especially with social media stuff, your podcasts are awesome. I was so uh, thrilled to be on your podcast and do the one on selectivity. And I had a really good time with it. But a lot of old white dudes don't get into progression. And progression today is social media and video and stuff like that. And your podcasting, um, is really cool. And you talk about, you know, meaningful things for people to get into fly fishing and to bridge their gaps and, uh, and you're doing it. And, and that's, what's so cool about it, Tom. And, um, and, and you don't, you don't act like a 60 year old, you, you act like a 30 year old. And I think that's the beauty of our genetic background that we, it pushes us to go to next levels. And, and, and one thing, you know, I noticed that, you know, the queen died and, and things of that and sad things. And th- today it seems like people are obsessed with obituaries and, you know, we, we, we Oh, poor, did you know that he died? Do you know that so-and-so the Carl Richards died? Do you know that Dick Pope's died? And, and these people just wash away and they, and they, they become irrelevant. And, and then all of a sudden they die. And then Fly Fisherman Magazine doesn't know so-and-so died. Well, what happened when they were alive? Why don't, why don't people appreciate people that are alive? And I think fly fishing needs to do a better job of appreciating lifetimes while people are living. And that's what I'm trying to do with a lot of my podcasts. I had, you know, 86-year-old, 84-year-old uh, Al Cucci on, which was a brutal time to get him hooked up to a Zoom and stuff like that. But I think our sport, more than any um, needs to promote the living knowledge that um, that Skews said we must we must be the living knowledge, not the dead knowledge, and uh, and that's a nice thing about social media today and stuff that you're doing, and, and and this podcast is we're promoting living knowledge, and we need to do a better job of it. Um, so that's my little sermon for the morning of Sunday morning here while we do this podcast. But we're going to get into something that's really special. And that's small stream hunting, hunting small. Yeah, can, we, can we get off um, obituaries and shit, Matt? You're yeah, right. but you know, Impressive. I'm kind of I'm kind of sentimental this morning. It's a Sunday morning. I should be in church. <laughs> my, my Catholic and and my Catholic and Jewish guilt is coming out of me right now. So I'm <laughs> I'm feeling that I should be somewhere else. So that was that was my preaching. But you know, let's we're going to get into small stream hunting creeks. So your guide to small fishing small streams, epic book, 2011. 
there comes this book out. When everybody's chasing big steelhead and become big Atlantic salmon and, you know, everybody's doing this and that. And, you know, oh, I got a 40-pound king and I got a 20-pound steelhead and I got a, you know, a, a big tarpon, small stream. That's where we were. That's where we were the happiest. When we were boys fishing crawlers on a fly rod on, on, on my whisk East Koi and, and, and doing things like salted minnows and fishing Mickey Finn streamers and I think that Tom, I think you're really a boy that hasn't grown up. Uh, I think absolutely. I Just ask my wife. Yep. I am also. My wife thinks I am a little child. She treats me like a child, um, and I think that's what keeps our mind fresh. I think that's what keeps the intrigue always there. And there's nothing better than a small stream to keep your intrigue because there's so many complex things going on when you're in the forest and you escape and you feel that sense of being a boy again. And, and that I am constantly in search of my youth. And I think that's what small streams mean to me. What is it? What do they mean to you, Tom? Well, I think, I think you captured it, man. I mean, you and I had a discussion of the Catskills where, you know, you, you love trout and steelhead, you love salmonids and you don't you don't really care to fish for carp or pike or saltwater species, and I love trout too. But you know, I I, I like all the other stuff too. And, and I said, Matt, what is it about trout? And you said something that was really perceptive that I had never thought of because I'm I'm not a deep thinker. Um, that it's it's our first love, Tom. You said you know it was it was. I mean, back in those days, trout were king, right? Trout were what you fly fished for. They were the they were the ultimate quarry, or they're the only quarry. And so we valued trout. We chased trout. And it, it you know, it makes me think. I was, I was fishing two days ago, uh, and a little brook trout stream. I had a great time. I didn't catch a fish over seven and a half, eight inches long. And and I'm standing there thinking why am why am i so delighted with these little tiny brook trout that half of them when i set the hook they flew through the air and i had to hold my rod high to prevent whacking them on the rocks you know why what was it about that and and i love doing it um i guess it's the i think it's the exploration i think it's the mystery of is there going to be a trout there Am I going to be able to get it to rise to my, well, I mean, with brook trout, if there's a trout there, you either spook them or you're going to rise them to your fly. <laughs> you know, it's not like, I mean, you can pretty much tell what's in a stream by going up through the dry dropper. Um, but I guess it's the, it's the anticipation and the mystery and the fooling of the fish. But um, yeah, uh, exploration is, is, the whole is 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 the see man i'm not very articulate exploration is the essence of small stream fishing i think i'm going fishing today as soon as we get done with this with pete kutzer looks like uh you know looks like mutton jeff when i go fishing with pete he's six foot six and i'm five six but we're <laughs> we're going to fish a small stream that neither of us has ever fished before Okay, that's just, perfect. Just to do it. I mean, we we could go we could find a we could find a stream around here and go and catch, you know, 20 trout uh in an afternoon pretty easily. But we're going to a place where neither of us has ever fished before, and that's exciting. 
to see what's beautiful. there. That is beautiful no. because that leads me into my exact next question. And that's a perfect setup. So you must have had a little ESP there. So well, how do you approach fly selection when you're going to new waters? How do you, how do you when you're going to embrace a new stream, I'm going hunting on a new creek. Oh. What, is, what is going to be your repertoire? What is going to be your template? How are you <laughs> going to come in there? And how are you going to look at the water? And how are you going to, what are you going to do? I mean, oh, that's e- that's really easy. Uh, you're talking small streams, right? This is all small streams. Okay. Yep. So I'm going to have a I'm going to have a chubby Chernobyl or or a Rosenhopper, which is my version of a chubby Chernobyl, just a little different. You saw yep that pattern, um, and I'm going to hang a nymph from it. Probably a little pear's ear, a little bead head, a little you know jig fly. I'm going to put the I'm going to put the chubby Chernobyl on four X probably seven and a half foot, or if I have a longer leader on my three weight, then I'll leave it on. And I'm going to put a pretty short dropper on it. And I'm just going to start fishing. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to start fishing. And, you know, certain streams, the fish will be only in the really deepest pockets. And certain streams, they'll be uh, more toward the heads Certain streams, they'll be more toward the pools or certain times a year. And so I'll fish pretty fast through a bunch of pockets. And if the the shallower stuff, the faster stuff doesn't pan out, then I know I can move quicker because the fish are only going to be in the, the real cream of the crop, the deeper pockets. And, you know, I'll just go from there. Um, you know, in small streams, even, even if it's a brown trout small stream, you're going to know they're there. You're gonna you're gonna know you're gonna know where they are pretty quick because even brown trout in small streams, um, they're a little shyer and a li- maybe a little pickier about fly pattern, but not much. And, and rainbows, cutthroats are the same. Brook trout are uh, you know the ones that grab and grab now and ask questions later, um, but browns aren't that hard in small streams. Um, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna you know figure it out. I'm gonna take it. I'm going to, I'm going to see what, see what works. I probably won't change flies. Yeah. And I fish a big fly. I fish it like a 10 or a 12 because I could probably hook more fish on a 16 parachute atoms, but I don't want those five inches really. Uh, You know, if I rise them, that's fine. That's fun. But I don't really want to hook a little five incher. Sometimes you can hook them through the eye, you know, when they're so small and damage them. They're, they're delicate. So right. I fish big fly and that sorts through some of the smaller fish. They'll still take a whack at it. <laughs> you know, they'll, oh, they'll yeah. try to, they can't even get in their mouth and they'll take a, they'll pick at it. Um, Especially but, those browns. you know, you, I mean, it's, you know, people think that people think that you can give them a formula and go to a stream and start catching fish. Well, that doesn't work. Even, yeah. even in a stream that I know that I've fished for 40 years um, I don't have a formula when I go out. I, I, I got a place to start, but I'm going to have to adjust as I go. I'm going to have to figure out what the fish want. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, how do you categorize your small streams? I mean, are your small streams um, in Vermont? So in my in my Nexus book, which you wrote such a beautiful introduction for, um, I, you know, I broke them down into fusion creeks and, and fusion creeks and versus freestone creeks. And the fusion creeks were those, 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 
freestone streams that run through farmland, pasture lands, like a lot of the Western New York streams that we fish. Uh, But they also have spring influences. They have that watercress alodea, that duckwort on the side, but then Mm -hmm. there'll be sections of freestone and then they'll have those spring influences. How are your creeks um, where you fish? Are they completely freestone or do they have that fusion spring creek influences or are they a combination of both? How are they? There isn't much uh, spring creek influence. They're mostly rocky mountain streams and uh, and pretty pretty steep drop. So they're plunge pools. If if I if I have a, a more of a more of a lowland stream with less fast water, you know, deeper pockets flowing through a meadow or whatever. When I fish something like that, I'm a little more careful and I might look, I might look for rises and I might put on a little bit smaller fly and a smaller nymph. You know, typically I start with a 14 nymph. I might start with a 16 or 18 on those, on those flatter streams, the low gradient streams. They're a little, they're a little trickier, but the, the, the rocky tumbling mountain streams, you can fish them pretty fast. The fish aren't that spooky because there's a lot of rushing water and you can even be kind of sloppy um, on those. But when you, and, and when they, you know, places where they flatten out and the water gets flat, then you have to pay a little bit more attention. Might have to go to a longer leader uh, or just put a longer tippet on. You might have to be a little more careful about your casting. So I kind of categorize them as, as, you know, mountain streams and, and lowland streams. So similar to your fusion would be my lowland streams. Right. Your approach uh, to these streams, you know, um, are you looking at sunlight shadows? Are you looking, uh, you know, how do you approach them? Do you approach them downstream, upstream? What is your favorite way to do it? Or does it vary from stream to stream? Um, And that question one, question two, how do you, how do you view different species of trout in those streams? Do you see them feeding differently? Do they have different characteristics? I always fish upstream because uh, because you're coming up behind the fish. You can get closer to them. If you fish downstream, you can't get that close to them, and you know you you can't really you can't really get a swing on these little tiny streams uh, because they're not they're not wide enough to get a swing. And so I ninety nine percent of the time I fish up straight upstream. Right. And what and, was your other uh, question? Oh, the different species. The different species. Yeah. What do you see any difference in the in the way they perceive you and 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 you know where they hang out and behave and stuff like that? Browns, um, birds, rainbows. You know, a little bit. Um, the brook trout are going to be on the edges of fast water. Usually, they're they're not going to be in the backwaters. They're not going to be in the. They might if there's some foam, they might be on the foam. But brook trout are going to be pretty close to the main current because they you know, they're, they feed all the time. Um, browns are going to be a little more likely to be in the tail of the pool, in which case I spook them a lot, you know, before I even get a cast over them, they're going to tend to be in the bucket in the pool in the deeper water. They're going to tend to be a little closer to cover, um, than a brook trout. Uh, and then rainbows, you know, rainbows, uh, cause we have, we have, uh, wild brooks, browns and rainbows in some of our streams. The rainbows are going to be right, right in the heavy water. They're going to be at the head of the pool uh, most of the time in the, you know, right under the fast water. Yeah. Um, and then cutthroats, I, when I do fish uh, small streams in the West, cutthroats are, are tricky because cutthroats are, 
uh, are often going to be in really shallow water, um, really, really shallow water. And you have to be a little more careful in cutthroat streams. Um, you know, they have the cutthroats can be almost anywhere, but they, they love Love that shallow water. (laughs) They're very surface oriented and it's easier to surface feed when you're in shallow water. Um, so, you know, cutthroats, you gotta, you gotta pay attention to some of the pockets that you might ignore in a brown trout stream. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, how do you nymph? How do you nymph um, small streams? Are you dry, drop. dry dropper, and you just dry think- dropper, even if it's April, uh, because you never know. I've had too many times where a fish has come up and slammed my indicator in a small stream, even early in the season. And I think a dry fly is just as good. And in, you know, with these short casts, a dry fly, you're not fishing heavy. You're not you're not fishing that heavy. You don't have a split shot on your on your leader. So you don't need to suspend. You don't need something. You don't need a bobber in small streams. So you can use an indicator, but it, it's just, you know, the, I want that. I want that fish that might take, might take a dry fly, even, even early in the season when there's no bugs around. Uh, so dry dropper is, it's so efficient. It's stealthier than fishing with a bobber. You know, bobbers land hard. Um, any kind of, except yarn. And if I'm going to put, if I'm going to use yarn, I might as well use a dry fly, right? Yeah, exactly. And you're not a big Euro guy. I don't take it. Um, no, cause I like to cast, Matt, you know, I've done, I've done Euro nymphing. It's super effective. Um, I'm not, I'm not somebody that's into numbers most of the time. That's I don't care if I, if I miss a few fish in a pool, you know? I don't need to vacuum the whole pool. Um, and I like to cast and yep. the casting part of your nipping is really, it's not that pleasant. It's Chuck and duck. I mean, yeah, I mean, I hate it's to say, great. And people, people love it and they have fun they with catch it. A lot of fish hey, and it takes, and it takes a lot of skill. It takes, you know, and I, and I wanted to learn it because it, it's, it was something new to me. Yep. And I have some friends who, who taught me a, a lot of things about particularly Jesse Haller. Uh, product developer with Orvis, who's just awesome. And George Daniel, uh, got to shoot a video with George Daniel. And, uh, you know, I learned so much from George. Um, so, yeah, but, you know, in small streams, yeah, I'm just going to fish dry dropper. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, it's tough for me being in the Great Lakes fishery and, you know, doing chuck and duck and, and wet late weight and running lines. And now it's yeah. monofilm and nymphing. And I'm like, geez, guys, we're just not even fly fishing anymore. We're just taking our arms and lobbing it and running monofilament with, with beadhead hooks. It's it's not fishing. I mean, it, it catches. Well, I, st- I still think it's fly fishing, man. Yeah, you got a fly ride and you got to fly in the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, I it's, think it's not like fly fishing. Yeah. And it's, I think you summed it up that, you know, we like to cast and that's why we like to do it. And yeah, and, uh, I draw the line at pegging beads. I have never, I have never <laughs> fished a peg bead and people tell me it's super effective, but if I can't put it in my vice and make it, then, then I, I'm not interested. So uh, yeah, I've never, I've never pegged beads, but you know what do people do over here? It's big time. It's big people time. People want to do it fine, you know. And if they want to yep. call it fly fishing, I don't care. Yep. I don't yep. care. I don't care what someone else calls fly fishing or not fly fishing. It's it's there. It's you know you fish the way you want. Exactly. Um, you know, I find vision. I find a lot of vision on, uh, and I wrote about it in my selectivity book on Big Hunting Creek. 
there was a there was a strain of wild brown trout on Big Hunting Creek, and they were so brutally tough. Um, they 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 look at your fly in one split second and decide if they're going to take it or not, whether it was the fly or the drag or the presentation or whatever. But I find that my theory on on on, on small streams is that their vision is even more acute, more more susceptible to rejection because they have to sift through so much junk coming down those streams. And I think your eyes are a product of how you use them. And I find out when I don't use my glasses to write and stuff, I could go for months without using them. But then when I have to use them, I, I rely on them. I think the the flow of, of, of like a cascading Creek, like big cunning Creek in Northern Maryland, they have to sift through so much in some of these tumbling drop rivers that you fish that they better have really good vision. They're going to be eating twigs and junk for the rest of their life. And well, they do eat twigs yeah. and junk and they spit them out. Right. That's yeah. why, that's but why they, so that's good. why they eat our, that's why they eat our flies, Matt, because they make mistakes. They make Absolutely. a lot of mistakes. They make tons of mistakes, just yeah. like, just like we do. And yeah. we love it because we learn from our mistakes. That's what makes us great. Streamer tactics on small little streams. How do you fish them? If you fish them and do you wait for discolored water and how do, how does it go about for you? Yeah, I don't, I don't fish streamers much on small streams. I find that, that if, if I, if there's a fish there, I can probably catch it on an, a nymph or a dry, um, when they get up and dirty, yeah, I'll, th- I'll throw on a streamer. And I might work downstream um, in that case. Uh, but they, they got to be they got to be up and dirty before I'll fish a streamer in a small stream. So I don't do it that often. Okay, this leads us to a question we have from Christy from Clarence, New York. And this is very appropriate for this subject that we're having with Tom. She says, hey, Tom and Matt, I love fishing my small streams in the southern tier, and especially the Allegheny Forest into Pennsylvania. What rods do you guys like to use in tight situations? I have heard both sides of the story. Very short or longer dapping rods like 10 Kara style to poke between trees and brush. Uh, by the way, I love your podcast, Tom. They helped me a ton. Uh, Tom, go ahead. What do you like to use? What's your favorite rods? That was, that was Lori. What was her name? Christy. 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 From well, Christy, um, my favorite, my favorite, uh, for small streams is a seven and a half foot three weight because the fish are small and I, I want the rod to bend a little bit. Um, I have, I have a, uh, I have a glass rod. I don't know if the glass is seven and a half or three, but I don't use the glass much. Uh, I have bamboo seven and a half or three. Um, that's actually a Orvis prototype that I've been, that I won't give back to the rod maker. Um, and I have a seven, I have a seven and a half foot three weight uh, H3 and a, and a recon, like maybe a clear water. But I find, I find that to be a nice combo. It's a nice light little rod. Uh, I, I do not like, like six foot rod. I think that really short rods are hard to cast, hard to hold line off the water if you're trying to avoid drag. And I don't think you get that much, uh, that much better, uh, in, in, in brushy streams with a really short rod. So I don't believe in them and I don't think people should use them. Um, that being said, I would, you know, I would use a nine foot rod in a small stream before I would use a six foot rod, nine foot rods are, you know, can be pretty good if you've got some clearance. And usually when you're fishing upstream, you have some space behind you because you're right in the middle of the stream. So uh, I wouldn't be against using a, a nine foot, uh, a, a nine foot rod, but I like seven and a half for three or four, you know, eight foot for four, somewhere around there. 
Tenkara. Um, you know, Tenkara rods are great. They're super efficient for small streams. You can, you can get a drag free float throughout your whole drift. And, um, I don't know. I just, I, I like my bamboo and I like my graphite and, um, rods. And I like, again, I like to cast I mean, Tenkara you do cast, but I, I just don't use them as much and I should because they're fun. Yeah. The one thing I find about Tenkara rods is I do a lot of walking through the brush and, you know, you don't want to collapse your Tenkara rod every time you walk from one spot to the next and they're long <laughs> and they get, they get caught in the trees. So It's brutal. Yeah. It's but once you get out in the stream, they're, they're super efficient. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Christy, I love, uh, I love, uh, I have a rod that I bought from Harry Murray down in Virginia when I was in DC. It was a Scott G series, eight foot, eight inch, two weight. And I live by that rod. It's a very slow, full flex rod. It fish, it's, it feels like a bamboo rod in your hands and I could cast under, I could roll cast. I could do little snap tees underneath the brush with the thing. It's slow motion rod. And it protects like tippets, and I fish these long twenty-foot leaders on these little tiny little brooks, and 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 it's crazy. Yeah, it's really interesting, and I have really long chameleon butts to them. But I'm literally fishing all leader, and it's it's so um, I love it, and it's that rod that gives it that motion. But uh, anyways, we are with Tom Rosenbauer discussing small streams, and we're going to hop into hatch matching strategies. So please stay tuned, listeners. We're going to be right back and take a quick break. And lines have been around since Cro-Magnum Man and Neanderthal Man, and that's what they caught to catch fish. And today, your hooks and your lines and your tippet material and your leaders are so important. And it's the ultimate challenge in what happens with you on on a trout stream or a salmon and steelhead river. Um, Hooks and lines are by far the most important things when it comes down to your choice of quality. And quality is probably the number one thing on the mind of English Sport Group from New York. Um, Maxima Leader Material and Leaders and Daiichi Hooks are their specialties. And I've been a big fan of Maxima as so many fly swingers and spay fishermen for such a long period of time. Their chameleon match up to the toughest conditions, the abrasion. They're, they're stiff enough to turn over large flies. The ultra green and clear uh, are just perfectly blend into a lot of the blue-green aqua-looking waters of certain salmon rivers that usually have two different types of connotations, a tannic or a very, very bright, clear scenario. Um, Maxima is the ultimate test pound for for heavy, big flies on the swing. Uh, When that fish takes your fly, you're gonna be very protected with Maxima. Daiichi hooks, there's not enough good things I can say about them. Um, In the trout series, the specialty hooks that they have um, down to their big Alec Jackson spay and their different type of spay hooks that they carry. Um, I would always shop for the best, shop for Daiichi and Maxima, and you will never go wrong. 
Able Reels have been the pinnacle of real technology for, for decades now. Since Steve Abel, aerospace engineer, started the company in California, their technology and their manufacturing, the drag systems, are simply impeccable. Um, they work to perfection, and everything they do is just a piece of art, including their art design on their real systems. Uh, they're beautiful artists that they have in these series of all the different trout, salmon, steelhead, saltwater fish, uh, utilizing technology with beauty and incorporating designs by Derek Young, Larco, Underwood, other people are simply the state of the art. What's so cool is when you take a picture of a fish, like I often do with Atlantic salmon and brown trout and hold my reels up against them, it's just beauty in the hand and beauty in the fish. Uh, and it just totally relates to the whole experience of why we fly fish and why we love what we're doing. Um, so please look at Able Reels next time you're looking at a large arbor reel and, and look at the difference and look at the quality, the workmanship, another USA made company that gives each reel a hand touch and their boutique made reels, especially the paintings. If you opt for the designs, which can be pricey, but if you're looking for that special gift for someone or you're trying to treat yourself, Able Reels are the way to go. Contact Jeff Patterson and Able, and you will never be disappointed in an Able product. Welcome back, listeners. We are having a very awesome, riveting discussion here with the iconic and complex trout bum troubadour, Mr. Tom Rosenbauer. And uh, we just talked about small streams and we had some great questions. And we're going to get into, I think, his best work that he's ever done. Uh, hatch matching strategies that he did in 2017. And uh, I really got to go through it pretty thoroughly because we're going to be doing a full review on, on the fall and winter issue of Hollowed Waters Journal. And uh, this is this is a complete Rosenbauer book because I think his heart and soul really lies in this book. And I have to correct you, Matt. It's not hatch matching strategies. It's hatch strategies. Okay. Guys, the persnickety Because, because the book, is, the book does not talk about matching the hatch. It talks um, about everything else but matching the hatch. Okay, successful fly fishing for trout without always matching the hatch. Yes, okay, but I think it's still hatch matching. Whatever, Tom, <laughs> I don't, you're just such a persnickety little thing. Okay, so listen, I love this book, okay? Um, it's it's awesome. It's your best that you've done. And it was so great to sit and watch for heads poking up with you, you know, sitting on that stream in the Catskills, that remote stream that nobody ever fishes. And it's going to be that way because no one's ever going to know where we fish. Uh, right. But anyways, um, it, it's a game of hunting, observing and watching and waiting for rise intervals and, and you know, waiting for that head to come up again. And And your book is, I love it. I mean, it's so well done. I love the intro. I love the first chapter. 
you know, you, you go back and where do we come from? You know, where does it all start? You know, it's, it's, it, and you got a, you got a lot of historian buff in you. And sometimes that doesn't come out as much as I think it should, but how did we get here? You know, that, that one chapter was really cool. And you, and you broke down that whole lineage with, you know, everything that started from the, from the early days in England to, to what went on with the queen of waters and Dom Juliana. And then you went into flick and Jennings and, and everybody there. Uh, but you know, uh, I love the entomology chapter, the simplicity it takes, you know, bugs have to be on the water. You have your little footnotes there. Bugs have to be on the water. So don't, don't waste your time with spinners jumping up in the air and things unless they're on the water because fish could be feeding. And that was such a powerful point. Because on our rivers, on our Muskegon here, and on some of our big, you know, Michigan rivers, you could have spinner fl- flights of of uh, isonychias that are thick as hell going over your head at dark, and, or gray drake flights. But what's on the water are rusty sulfur spinners, and you can't even see. The, there's the sulfur yeah. guns are pretty much gone. We have sulfur spinners on the water. Yeah. So that was such a great point. Um, tell us a little bit about the inspiration for this book and, and how did you, how did you come up with that great idea? Well, <laughs> you know, when, when I write books, I, I, I want to write something that, that hasn't been done before or hasn't been done well. And, you know, I want to, I want to cover something, something new, some new, new territory, because there, there are lots of great hatch matching books out there. There are lots of great books on what fly to pick, how to identify the mayfly or the caddisfly. People have done some incredible work on that. But um, what, what I don't think has ever been covered as well as hatch matching is all the other things we do when there's a hatch. Um, you know, the, the one person that did it well, I think, uh, the one entomology book that did it well was Freddie Arbona's book. Uh, uh, what's the name? Mayflies, the Trout, and the Angler. My Mayflies, God, the Trout, and the Angler. Best yes. book. That is the best book I've ever read. About yeah, that. it's out of print, but he talked a lot about strategies. Yeah, and um, and you know, it's when it, when a fish is feeding on a mayfly hatch, for instance, it sees it sees nymphs just under the surface. It sees emergers just popping up there. It sees partially emerged flies. It sees duns that are fully emerged and, and riding on their tiptoes. And it sees, it sees knockdown duns. And so there, is a, there are a range of, of silhouettes and, and even colors that a fish will accept during a hatch. Because, you know, we say, oh, sometimes they select toward emergers. Yeah, they, they might they might select our emergers, but even those emergers are going to, are going to look a little different. You know, each one's going to look a little different. So the exact pattern is, I don't feel is as important as long as you're in the ballpark with size and shade. um, It's not the pattern and the pattern is the easiest thing for us to change, right? uh, That fly doesn't work. I'm going to, I'm going to try another fly. Because it's easy. It's right. it's a simple solution, but it's not always the case. Um, where you stand, how long your tippet is, the angle that you cast to that fish, uh, you know, observing the fish, uh, picking out its rhythm, all those other things that a good 
Hatch Angler does, but doesn't talk about in their books or in their videos or whatever. All they talk about is, you know, looking at the fly and figuring out what species it is and, and getting the right pattern. Um, there's no magic pattern. There's no magic pattern, but there can be a magic presentation, I believe. And it varies with each fish. Each fish in a pool is in a little bit different microcurrent, and you have to read. You have to read each individual fish and figure out how to get that fly over the fish in a natural manner without spooking it. That's the essence of matching the hatch. Is yeah, that getting is getting a realistic drift and fooling that fish. And I just think that fly pattern is maybe 20% of the, of the equation and all the other stuff is 80%. Yeah. I mean, look at the people that fish parachute Adams through every hatch they encounter and they do really well. Yeah. Uh, Ed Van Putt, Ed Van Putt on the Delaware, right? Yeah. All he carries is parachute atoms in every size from 12 to 22. Yeah. But Ed Van Putt, I'm sure he knows those fish. He knows the currents. He knows what what tippet to use. He knows what length leader to use. He knows where to stand. He knows what angle to cast to the fish. That's that's really what what separates a, a real fishy catch matcher from, you know, someone who just keeps changing flies. Now there are times, certainly there are times when you're sure that you're getting a great drift and the fish keeps feeding and the fish has seen your fly go over drag free a dozen times. And you're, you, you know, you're in the rhythm properly. Well, then, then maybe it's time to change flies. Um, but I just think there's so much more to fishing hatches. And hatches are the hatches are the golden moment because we know they're fish there, we know they're feeding, um, and you know we don't always know that they're fish there, and we don't always know that they're feeding during a hatch. We got we got all that covered. Um, so you know it's and and the fish are active and they get stupid during a hatch. You know they they get preoccupied. They don't multitask very well. They're not as spooky. They get preoccupied with feeding. Um, you know, I have some fish in my backyard, the, it's very low and clear, small stream. And, uh, there's a pool with a whole bunch of fish in it and I can't catch them. And I've been waiting and waiting for a really good trico hatch to make the fish preoccupied. Cause I go out there and there's a sparse hatch and the fish are on alert. I can't even get a cast over with seven X without spooking them. But I know I get a good trico spinner you don't need fly. 7X. You never need to fish 7X. I well, just fish 5X the whole time on 22. The only reason I fish 6X, 7X, Matt, the only reason I fish 7X is because it lands lighter on the water. I have seen those fish spook when a 6X tippet lands near them. That's yeah. the only reason I use 7X. I don't think they're leader shy. I think they can always see it. But but it does, it's so air resistant. Um, and, yeah, and that's it, true. Yeah. When you're fishing trichos, 24 trichos, uh, 20, 26 midges, and 28 midges, you're going to need 7X. There's, Sometimes, I, yeah. I mean, I, I'll use I six if have... I can get away with it. I just know that I can't. But, yeah. you know, I, I have to wait till those fish get preoccupied on uh, on a hatch before I can catch them. Or I, or I go down and fish them right before dark when they're, when they're less spooky. But 
the river's covered with bats at that time of night. And I don't like, you and I talked about bats. We don't like bats. You don't like bats. I don't like hooking bats. I don't like them hitting my rod. Um, yeah. So you you know, your comments, the fish get stupid at time. And that, that, per, and by the way, I like this photo right here. This, this, all your books that you, these iconic books, you got my little selectivity book in here. So that was either planned or by accident. I'm going to say it's by accident. Uh, you owe me 20 uh, anyways, bucks for that. You owe me 20 you know, bucks for that. I, I got a check. I got, I got some Polish sausage coming to you. Some really oh, good. Oh, okay. You, had, you like that Polish sausage, wasn't I it? I love Polish that sausage? Polish oh, you fed me. You fed me well in the Catskills. Oh, thank you. Five, you pounds, well. five pounds coming to you. But uh, so you summed it up perfectly, my selectivity theories, because they get aggressive and active in the First, Hendrickson hatch of the year, these fish go absolutely stupid. They get stupid during a hatch. But once you tell me you go fish Poe Patty State Park in Pennsylvania during the Green Drake hatch, and you're already a week into the Green Drake hatch, you're going to get some of the most ridiculously selective fish to rise to those coffin flies that are going to snuff at everything. On my river, the Gray Drakes, we have five weeks of heavy Gray Drake hatches, oh, sawdust. At, at the third week, they were come up, eat for two seconds. They'll pick a fly that, that has like a half of its three quarters of its wings chopped off. It's laying on its slide aside. Yeah, it's, yeah. and then th- that's when the selective reflective phase gets in and uh-huh. it happens up with the ephemera Danica for you, uh, European guys uh, that fish the mayfly in, in the UK and all over Europe, they get snooty as hell two weeks. And so, yeah, they get stupid when it first starts, but, you fish trichos in October. Uh, that fish knows exactly when it's coming down. He's got his little three picking spots, his little fulcrum spots. And so, yeah, they do get crazy, but then they get super selective after a while when they have, when they're fed so well and they really don't need to feed, but that urge to feed is there. Uh-huh. Come up and eat because it's their nature. It's in their yep. DNA that we talked about in selectivity. They're going to get snooty. And on this river, they only take one wing patterns, wings that are, the bodies are curved up. I bend the shit out of my hooks. Yeah, that's a good then, trick. You know, and then uh, I'm fishing only one wing laying on its side. Me, yep. It just looks like crap. And that's what we're talking about there. So you, they are stupid, but then they aren't stupid. And, and you know, your optimal foraging theory, which is um, a really nice part uh, of that chat of the chapter in entomology, you know, the, the, the maximum caloric intake and, and the, um, you know, least amount of effort. And these, all these theories that, you know, fish, your fishery biology background is, is perfect for that temperature counts. You know, I like your bullet points throughout this whole thing, you know, you temperature counts. Yeah. I mean, you're, 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 you're at the first hatch of the year, Hendrickson's, but your damn water temps are still in the upper thirties or, you know, you get a couple of warm days that increase the incubation period on these bugs, but then you get, you know, you get the early black stonefly hatch here on our rivers comes March. Water temps are 38, 39. We're like, why aren't these fish taking all these goddamn bucks? And you're absolutely right. You, you sum it up right there. Temperature counts. What's your, what's your um, interpretation of that? And where have you seen that happen? Uh, well, I've seen early season hatches where, where the fish, I think it's a combination of cold temperatures and fast flows. They just they just can't waste the energy to come up to the surface. It's too yeah. much. It's too much work. Um, yeah. They burn. They burn more calories than they get, and they're good at figuring this out. And yeah, I mean, we've all seen hatches where, for whatever, maybe a sudden drop in temperature, even in this, you know, late spring or early summer, 
some sudden drop in temperature, bugs all over the water, fish aren't interested. Uh, they don't like a drop in temperature. Yeah. And they, I Puts think they're kind of dormant and they still, they're, they're, they're in the States where they're, they're so busy looking around the rocks and they won't come up and yeah. they haven't really supercharged into, into what they should be doing. And it takes a few days. And then finally they figure out, it's like any new hatch takes a, a romance period where they have to get cuddly with it. And they're not, you know, you you switch from sulfur hatches to hexagenia hatches. And they're like, what the hell is that thing? You know, yeah, yeah. trout are wary and they got that, they got that, I'm not going to switch my app. And I think when I did the podcast with you on selectivity, we talked about it's, uh, it's an app. It's selectivity is an app and the hard drive is selectivity, but what app they're going to choose, are they going to be aggressive or active or selective? And it all depends on, on their familiarity. And they're not going to flip that switch until they know all systems are go, all systems are clear. Uh-huh. And, and avian predators play, you know, I, I'm not, I've never spent more time in my life paying attention to avian predators, but yeah. if you looked at that section of the river we were in and you looked at all the different predators that were in that river, how, how vulnerable they are to coming up and taking a dry fly. Yeah. And, and they just got to get one bad move and they're picked off and they spent a lot of time doing that. But what I really liked about your book, the rise form section was really good. You got into the the specifics of swirling rises, which I've never seen anybody do that before. And that's pretty freaking cool. And and tell me your, your, your theories on that whole swirling rises and different types of swirling rises. And what does it mean? And you, you know, give the listener a little bit of that. Well, I, I think it's pretty straightforward that, um, that if, if a fish swirls on the surface and, but there's no bubble, uh, it's probably eating something down below because when they, take something off the surface, they take in air and it has to come out through their gills. And they they have a they have a body mass that can make something look like a rise when they were eating, you know, three or four inches below the surface because they stick up a you know their fin sticks up above the above their head. And um, you know, you can it, it can look like a it can look like a rise, but it's not. And then the other part of it is I don't believe that you can tell what uh, what kind of insect fish are taken by the rise. I think it, it has a lot more to do with where they are in the water column when they feed. So a fish that's fish that's in two or three feet of water that's coming up for a bug is going to make a pretty splashy rise. They have to because they got momentum. Whereas a fish that's hovering under the surface um, is going to just sit. And it's, you know, you might not, you might just see their head come up. And I've seen that with caddis flies. I've seen it with stone flies. You know, they can sip anything. It might not be a midge and it might not be a spinner. It could be a, a, a mayfly done um, if, if they're hovering below the surface. So I don't, I don't believe you. I don't believe that's a caddis rise because it was splashy. Nah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not it buying that. Anything. It'd be chasing a potamanthus nymph. It could be chasing an Isonychia nymph. Yeah. Those are pretty powerful boils. Yeah. And yeah. you don't know. It's, it's definitely movement taking something unless it's a slow bulging rise, which creates a little bit of a, a push or swirl, but not really. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, meniscus and emergers and all that and the level of importance. And, and, you know, when we read all these iconic books, nobody really talked a lot about emergers. I mean, Swisher was one of the first and, then, you know, then Couchy, you know, got into the Comparadon emerger and, you know, you started hearing about that. But when did you start finding value 
in fishing meniscus and mergers and things flushed in that tension of that meniscus, that, that, that point, when did you start realizing that and how did you start dealing with it? Well, I think I, I realized it pretty early because I grew up fishing a spring Creek, which will remain nameless, um, that, uh, had pretty prolific midge and betas hatches. And, um, the, the standard upright dry fly didn't always work. And, when I got down to the water, I mean, I was a teenager, so I had lots of time to play around and look at this stuff. I could see that there were bugs that were, their wing pads were just barely open and they were kind of hanging in the surface film. Um, and so I you know, started fishing flies that were damp. In other words, not dry, not wet, but damp flies. Emergers, you know, could be just a soft hackle, could be a, a fancy emerger. And it wasn't until it wasn't until fairly recently that I realized that size matters. You know, why why do fish take uh betas, little little 1820 betas when there's a big March brown on the water? Yeah. What what I what yeah. I finally figured out was that a little bug has a has to work really hard to get through the meniscus. It's a barrier. And a big bug can kind of just pop through it. Um, but a little bug has a lot more trouble. Thus, they're going to stay in a vulnerable position for a longer period of time. And they're going to, they're going to have to struggle a lot more and a lot longer. So the fish, you know, fish are, it's just like a, a you know, a, a hyena chasing down a, a wounded gazelle or a, or a young gazelle. They know which ones are more vulnerable and easier to capture. And the little ones, the little ones have more trouble. And so the little bugs often get eaten when the big bugs don't. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right on that. Um, how do you deal with a garbage feeding fish and, and, and all those like that we see on those long Catskill flats, you know, on the East Branch or West Branch and, you know, these fish that just cruise that pool, are you, are you waiting for them to see location? Are you, are you doing, you know, I talked a lot about this with uh, Dave Jensen when I did a a couple hour podcast with him and, and we were talking about all those little spring creeks he fishes, but all those big, big lakes and stuff where these fish are just constantly these backwater sloughs. And I encountered it in Dupuis spring Creek and uh, on Nelson's where they just cruise around in circles where there's no flow because it's a spring Creek. The water's cold. They got the oxygen. Uh, I was waiting for intervals and I basically figured out an interval where this guy was practically doing like a semi circle eight. And he was going from one spot to the other spot to yeah. the other spot. And I was basically timing my fly to be in that location and it was an ant, of course, anting the hatch. Remember Ken Miata, anting the hatch, Yeah, you know, that, which correlates to your book. What do you do? Not matching the hatch in hatch strategies. And um, how do you deal with those, those cruising fish that are never in that one location? And how, what's your approach to that? Well, I think you got it. You got, you got to watch them for a while. You got to, you got to figure out a pattern and most of them have a pattern. Um, and you just got to figure out figure out what their, what their cadence is and what the pattern is. And you try to get it in front of them when, you know, when they're in that's in the spot and yeah. you try to pick, you try to pick a time when they're in a spot where you don't get drag and, you know, you can, you can make a better cast because you might have a half a dozen options. If you're standing next to a backwater, you want to pitch it in there when they're in a spot where you can get a good drift. 
Absolutely. But you can't just fire, you can't just fire away a dry fly in there if they're cruising. So, you know, especially in slow water, when you see a fish, when you see a fish rising in really stagnant, slow water, you, you can't cast right away. You have to watch for that fish and see if it's got a pattern. Sometimes they'll stay put and that's great, but often they'll cruise and you got to figure it out. Yeah. Perfect. We are going to take a quick question here from Dylan R. from Boulder, Colorado. He says, hey, guys, what is Tom's theories on simplifying the hatch matching game? I'm new and confused by all the Latin. What general flies will take me through a season to imitate mayflies, caddis, and stoneflies since Tom is presentation and the size guy versus exact imitation? Dash, I know that Matt is by reading his books, imitation oriented. Um, Dick Pope's Trout Stream Insects is my Bible. So is the Orvis Caddis Handbook. Well done, Orvis. That is from Dylan. And he. I think basically he wants to know if I'm going to be in a mayfly hatch, what should I use if I be a cast? I'd say give him like one option of a mayfly, caddis, a stonefly hatch that you think that imitates as best as you can without matching that specific. I know. I, I, I'm reluctant to to name specific patterns, but I have a, a YouTube video that's on the Orvis Learning Center that what are the 12 flies that you should carry everywhere? And I would I would advise him to to look at that first and get those flies. You know, things like parachute atoms, some little blue wing olive. Uh, but you know, I don't get hung up on fly patterns. So you shouldn't get hung up on fly pattern. Um, there, there are just way too many of them out there. I would advise him to to learn the aquatic insects at to the order level. So the order level is mayflies, stoneflies, caddisflies, midges. Um, figure out figure out which type it is, and then throw in a you know the appropriate silhouette. Have some have some stonefly looking things, whatever, pick whatever. Doesn't it, the exact pattern doesn't matter. Pick a, a stimulator, chubby Chernobyl, whatever. You can use that for a grasshopper and use that for a stonefly and then pick a mayfly um, parachute atoms. Sparkle done. Pick, you know, pick, pick a mayfly pattern and then pick a caddisfly pattern. I would, I would not uh, go to Alcare Caddis, my first choice in a in a caddis hatch. Um, although I might have mentioned it in that in that, um, in that YouTube video, it will it does work well. But you're usually better off with something without as much hackles and Alcare Caddis. Uh, if you fish your Alcare Caddis, try trimming all the hackle off it and just let it sit a little bit lower in the film, look more like an emerger. Goddard Caddis. Yeah. Goddard Caddis is a pellet imitation. <laughs> that's exactly it. It is a pellet imitation. You are so right because that's what they feed the fish on on the test and the itching and yeah. the floating gray pellets. So the Goddard Caddis and the Kennet, where those guys were fishing Goddard and Cark, they were feeding. They were. It's a pellet, pellet imitation. You are it is terrible. a pellet imitation. You are Absolutely. exactly right. We are with Tom Rosenbauer. We are taking one more break and we're coming back to co- conclude this wonderful podcast. So stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back.
I've known Marcos at Hairline for a long time since he had his fly shop in Glen Allen in Chicago suburbs, the fly in field. Marcos was a serious, serious fly tying guru, and he had every material known to mankind imported from all over the place. Marcos has since gone to Hairline and has been there for decades now, and he's done such an amazing job of, of taking that company and taking it to the upper limit of having a one-stop place where you get the ultimate quality in hooks and materials and feathers and tinsels and designs and tubes. They pretty much have everything for the trout, the salmon, the steelhead fly fisher, the warm water fly fisher, but really they've come into their own, especially in the spay area with the RX hooks, the Daiichi, Alec Jackson hooks, all the intruder wires and materials by Greg Senyo, um, and importing some of the best products possible. Um, you won't go wrong by going to Hairline and seeing the product offering they have. They really have pretty much everything, and, and even in the tube section, the HMH tubing and stuff like that, they have gone to the next level. So I highly encourage you to shop at Hairline, Tell Marcos I said hi, and it is truly one of the best um, all-around places to go for looking for that special material that you're in the market for. can't say enough good things about G. Loomis rods. They're made out in Washington State for over 30 years, and their latest NRX series are absolute bombs. Steve Rajeff uh, designed these Apex Beasts that are just amazing. Uh, their, their new uh, Nano Silka um, resin system uh, is so amazing that it makes them so much lighter, and they can cast with so much more power throughout the whole rod. Um, the lightness and, and the power generates are so much more important for the line speed. And, and especially if you're doing Scandi tapers, underhand casting with sinking heads, um, deep dredging skagits um, with, with heavier um, weighted intruders. Um, they do it pretty much all. And even with floating lines, like in long belly, uh, traditional spay casting, uh, the stamina for these rods and the long anchors in this traditional styling is amazing. Um, they're very rich looking and I highly recommend them as does my friend Tom Larimer, their representative out on the West Coast. So ask for G. Loomis rods when you go to your fly shop or visit them online at G. Loomis, but you won't be disappointed. Um, their, their, their whole technology is taking off and it's just simply amazing if you're a serious spay fisherman and a swinger, uh, you're going to really enjoy these rocks.
Hello, listeners. As publisher of Hollowed Waters Journal, I'm really proud to bring you this magazine that we've put together and we've been going really strong for the last year. Uh, our accolade winning and amazing in-depth issues full of sumptuous photography, fly patterns and extensive tactical information can be purchased individually now in our archive series for you to read and reread over and over. We treat each topic and article as a mini Bible on the subject that you will explore with your passion and journey for trout, salmon, and steelhead fly fishing. And we'll hopefully rethink your relationship with these fish and make you fly addicted for life. No other magazine has the content and depth as Hollowed Waters Journal. Find out what you've been missing and come to hollowedwaters.com today and subscribe. back discussing small stream trout in this wonderful world of trout with the iconic Tom Rosenbauer. And we've just been talking about his, one of his latest books, Hatch Matching Guide to Hatch Strategy, Successful Fly Fishing for Trout Without Always Matching the Hatch. And it's such a great book because um, a, a friend of mine, Ken Miata, back in the old DC days wrote an article called Anting the Hatch. And it was like, you could fish any hatch, no matter where you are, as long as you have an ant, because fish love ants. Um, yeah, ant or, or a small beetle. Or, yep, or a, a beetle at them. All the time. And um, so, yeah, it's, they, they got a, they got a, they got a mojo. They got a, they got a Jones for these, these certain terrestrials. And um, it's going to take us to this next question, but just in concluding uh, Tom's book, great book. You know, I like his last chapter 10, his last chapter, targeting larger trout during catches. And everybody always wants a big brown trout and, you know, in all my years of guiding, if you mention big brown trout, people will go to the ends of the earth and and they'll break religion and they'll break family ties just to get a big brown trout in. And that's why I wrote my crazy nexus book. But he he he, he summed it up in just a few really good uh, headers in, in that chapter. He says, fish the right hatch. I mean, you, you know that big brown trout or big rainbow trout or big cutthroats or big brookies are going to come up for a hex hatch, or they're going to come up for an Isonicia hatch, or they're going to come up for the first big hatch of the year, like Hendrickson's. So fishing the right hatch and a lot of the small minutia stuff, they might not pay attention to. So if you really want a big fish, you're going to go where the big calories lie in that optimal, optimal metabolic theory that he has in his book. And you're going to fish that hatch, wear out your oars and wading shoes. So that's a beautiful one. You gotta you gotta go to locations where most people don't wanna. You gotta be on the hunt. You have to become a hunter. And we did a big brown trout series hunters on the Hollowed Waters podcast. And you have to take the mind and put yourself into that hunting frame of mind. And that's a beautiful thing. You wore out your oars and wading shoes on your on your boots. But wear out your patience was the best one Tom had in there. And Tom, um, I don't know what you could say about that, but it's all in the book. You just got to get the book, 
right? I forgot I wrote that. You forgot. Yeah, it's it's, it's tough. It's tough being you, isn't it? <laughs> no, it's pretty easy, actually. Yeah. You know, and what do, what, what do large trout rises look like and sound like? So I, all of you people out there that dry fly fish at all, you must get this book. So that's all I'm going to say from there. And then we're going to go to our final question, which is Rick P. from Port Credit, Ontario. He says, we have wild browns in the upper Credit River, very spooky, very selective and shy. Uh, I do well during the hatches, but summers, even when spring-fed waters are cold, these fish are very elusive. They ignore my nymphs. Uh, I can't get them to go on anything. Any help? Tom, that one's all on you. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, the, the bat and kill has has uh, lots of large brown, not a lot, but it has some very large brown trout. And in the summer, they pretty much disappear. You just don't, you don't see them feeding. Um, and so the, the tactic for catching those is to wait for a rainstorm and go out with a big streamer. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, the brown trout will switch on and those big fish will come out from wherever they're hiding all day long they're probably feeding a lot at night and they'll be hunting for uh, minnows and crayfish. And so, you know, watch the weather. And if you get a sudden dump of rain and the river goes up and gets dirty, uh, go out there with a big streamer. So that that's one thing. The other thing is to uh, fish very early in the morning and uh, right before dark because that's or fish at night. Um, I, I don't night fish as much as I used to, but, you know, fish at night, um, I wouldn't mouse. I don't, mo- mousing is, there's a dirty secret about mousing is that you get a lot of, uh, get a lot of boils and you get a lot of short strikes. Um, my, my choice for fishing at night would be a, a black muddler minnow, uh, unweighted or a black woolly bugger unweighted and just swing it in the current as opposed to mousing. Mousing is exciting, but um, going to connect more often with a with an unweighted streamer. So fish early in the morning. Fish your nymphs early in the morning. Um, you know you're gonna you're gonna probably see those fish in the middle of the day, but they're probably not feeding, and they probably know you're there. And uh, you know, bright light, bright light in the middle of summer. Those those big brown trout are just not eating. So yeah. You, you got to wait for the right opportunity. Uh, you just can't go out there and expect to catch them. Yeah, and uh, you're very right. And especially on the mousing thing, uh, when I used to mouse a lot of uh, those Western New York streams and, and Allegheny streams, um, uh, big Taranarsis nymphs, stonefly nymphs are very active at nighttime. So a lot mm-hmm. of like what Tom just said about a black woolly bugger or something that you're basically imitating what I think most of mousing is imitating is large Terranarsis movement. And, and they're very noisy in movement. And they, when they do emerge and they emerge by rocks and where most of these fish are concentrating on these boulders and stumps, like on the pear market with my buddy, Tommy Lynch, you know, mice, yeah, occasionally mice fall off these things, but it's mostly Terranarsis nymphs trying to crawl up on these logs and, making a big commotion near shore. Mm. So mm. big, large size two, size two watt stone flies um, is, is golden for you if you want a mouse, but I'm going to hit on one very important one. And that one that's really changed me over the years is terrestrials, yeah. even on rivers that, 
you're not, you know, do we think terrestrials, we think spring creeks and big farmland and, and bingo, bingo. But I've started to fish terrestrials in the Catskills that have totally transformed my game. And yeah. I've had 22 inch brown trout come out of nowhere in the middle, in, of, the in the middle of the day in August on a bright in sunny day. You're right. On yeah. rivers that are hollowed mayfly waters because of Arbona and because of Couchy and because of everybody, we just think mayflies. We're in the Catskills or we're here on this river. It's a mayfly river. Fish terrestrials in the middle of the day. And it all goes down to that surface vision. And I'm going to take one of Tom's quotes that he did in my Nexus introduction on trout looking up. And, and, and he said that, uh, quote, I found his observations of the surface orientation of resident trout, Atlantic salmon, and sea run brown trout, all rising uh, to inspect floating debris on his boyhood river in Poland fascinating. I was always considered brown trout to be the least surface oriented of all the resident salmonid species. But after diving into this book, I realized it's more of the reluctance to feed at times, quotation mark, sun, et cetera, and not their lack of interest in the surface. So this is one thing for you to realize that they're always looking up and, and they probably see you. But if there's a big juicy piece of terrestrial and they've learned that terrestrial equals food, they're going to come up out of nowhere and rise five, six feet and take that terrestrial. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it happen. It's not going to happen all the time. But Good when point, you do, you're going to be shit shocked because he's going to come up a fish that just gives you the finger all day long for weeks and takes that big meaty offering. And that's something you got to think about doing more often. So after that, that concludes what we got to and we gotten through it, Tom. So you survived. God bless you. Uh, and it wasn't it was, that it, much it was it was pretty easy, Matt. You've been easy on me. Yeah, I was pretty easy on you. You know, next time we have to do part two and it's going to be a little more, <laughs> a little more in depth. But now we're going to go to our favorite, my favorite time when you really get to know these people. And it's called the one minute zip clip. So you got 30 seconds to a minute to answer these questions. Okay. And it's sort of my doer's profile. So then there's some of them are really easy. You'll answer them really quickly. And then um, we're going to, it's going to be all over and you could go and do your fishing and, um, all that great stuff. So horoscope sign. What are you, Tom? Taurus. Taurus. Ah, what's what traits do you completely embody in that sign? I don't know. I don't pay much attention to horoscopes. I guess the uh, stubbornness and and doggedness, meticulousness, pragmaticness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's true. That fits you to the T. You better not write him an email with 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 some nasty or or some like um like corrections. He'll correct. He's like an auto check. So if you have a, like one misspelled word, Tom will find it. I love well, it. Yeah. Uh, favorite dish. If you had one dish before you, you were going to be death sentence because you're in a in a Russian gulag for writing too many fly fishing books, and you had one dish that you had to have before you die. What favorite gourmet dish would that be? Grilled duck breast. Oh, kachka, kachka in Polish. It's called kachka. Kachka, yeah. Poles just eat kachka like, and Europeans love duck, and I love duck, and I would kill for good duck. I eat it once a week. Oh, God, I I envy you. Your favorite drink, first wine, first best, your fit one, you only get one. Favorite drink or wine? Well, wink. I mean, I'm talking about wine, wine. Oh, favorite wine. Uh, if you had one, just one. You can't just only have one. Rombauer Zinfandel. Okay, beautiful. How about spirit? Scotch? Rum. Okay, rum. Dip- okay. Diplomatico 
or uh, Havana Club if I can get it. Okay, good. Uh, do you drink beer? No. Okay. Uh, mushroom hunting tips. I want two tips for the novice starting out wild mushroom hunter. What are Tom's two tips? You asked that of all your guests? Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, go with somebody who knows what they're doing. And uh, always, always identify a mushroom you're going to eat in three books and then eat a small amount. Okay. Wonderful. Favorite chocolate. Uh, okay. So other than yours, what's your favorite chocolate that inspired you so much? And then of your meadowy muddler, which is your favorite chocolate? Oh, favorite chocolate. You know, I, I, I haven't, uh, let's see, what is the name of that? There's a, there's an Italian company. God, I can't, uh, there's an, there's an Italian company. I can't remember the name of it. I don't eat that much other people's chocolate because I, you know, it makes so much, but um, I can't remember it. It's an Italian company. They have a really good porcelano. Um, I can't remember the name of it. So many of them. So yeah. And your, and your favorite chocolate. So Italian chocolate, that makes sense. Cause they, my, my favorite bean, cause all my chocolate is 72% dark, uh, just organic sugar and cocoa beans. My favorite is uh, Zorzal. It comes out of favorite bean is Zorzal. It comes out of Dominican Republic. Yep, it's good stuff. Floro or mono guy? Both. Okay, and mono for your leader and floro for your tips. Yeah. Okay. Favorite rod and reel. If I caught you fishing on your day, and what rod would you have, and what reel would you have? Oh, probably it would be the. Uh, Helios 3F904. And the reel would be the new CFO? Yeah, reel would be the new CFO. The beautiful reel. I got a birthday coming up, so I got a birthday coming up. Just a, just a hint. Uh, favorite, favorite band music? What's that? Favorite band music? Uh, Dawes. Okay. Uh, favorite book? Favorite book? Um... Annals of a Former World by John McPhee. Favorite Netflix Prime series? Oh, God, I don't know if it's, I'm not sure if it's Netflix or not. Um, Netflix or Netflix or Prime? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's uh, The Bridge. Okay, The Bridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You told me about that. Uh, yeah. Favorite river if you only had to pick one in the world? That's a tough one. This is Madison. Madison. Okay. Oh, Madison. Beautiful. Favorite fish and not carp. Parentheses, not carp. Pressure <laughs> salt. Uh, favorite movie. Of wait, all wait, time. wait. I didn't answer that. You said favorite fish and I said pressure salt. Oh, no. Okay. I didn't hear you say a fr- uh, fresh. Uh, brown trout. Salt. Uh, bluefin tuna. Okay. Not that I've caught many, but I I chase them when I can. Or bonefish. Bonefish. Okay. Okay. I like the brown trout one. Favorite movie of all time? Chinatown. Beautiful. I love Kubrick. Uh, Favorite non-fishing pastime you do with your lovely wife? Hunting mushrooms. 
That's beautiful. Jeez, you're just so wonderful. So on that note, Tom, you are allowed to go fishing your new creek. I want to see pictures of your conquest. And it's been a true, true pleasure having you. And I figured we could do, we have to do one more of you because I haven't covered everything. But I did, I covered everything I want to do here. Um, and uh, you're, you're a renaissance man, dude. Keep it up. Keep the energy, the flow, the positiveness. And um, thank you all you listeners out there for listening. We've really uh, had a great time here. So, uh, Tom, uh, thank you for coming. Thank you, Matt. It's been fun. It's always fun talking to you. I love, I love talking to you. We always have such a great time. It was such an honor to fish with you. Thank you for the invitation this year. It was, uh, it was truly a special, special couple of days. Wonderful, and I, I, I really bromance with you, buddy. It was a lot of fun. And, and that note, everyone, be good to each other. Take care of each other. Be kind to each other. When you're on the stream, say hello to people. Share your flies. Share your thoughts. Uh, we need a new age coming, and that new age is to just just like each other a little bit more. So on that note, goodbye. I'll be the same. David Zegna, Arrivederci, Bambini, Adios, Au revoir. Till the next time on Hollywood Waters Podcast. Goodbye.